The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll discuss HBO's Martin Scorsese Mick Jagger project, Vinyl, and Louis C.K.'s surprise show, Horace and Pete. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. There's Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller sites Hey guys. Hey. So, Vinyl is a show we, we've all been anticipating for a while, which is the first of actually three shows that are behind the scenes rock and roll, or music not necessarily industry. rock and roll, but music industry dramas yeah. from big filmmakers. Cameron Crowe is doing Roadies on Showtime. Baz Luhrmann's The Get Down is on Netflix. Yeah, this fall, I think. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and Vinyl's, Vinyl's the first. And also Empire already is out there. Right. Which is maybe a little bit more human-driven than industry-driven, but a huge, huge part of that show is the maneuverings within a music industry organization. Definitely. Totally. Definitely. And Vinyl was brought to us from the team behind Boardwalk Empire. So we have Terrence Winter... Martin Scorsese also directed the pilot. So for those who aren't familiar with the show, it's set in the 70s, and it centers around a record company called American Century that's kind of struggling to stay relevant. <clears throat> the year is 1973. And Bobby Cannavale plays Richie Finestra, who's the head of A&R. He's the one who's kind of pushing them towards relevance and also has a secondary storyline in which he commits a murder. So we'll get to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I like that that's the, that's the B plot. You know? And why don't we start off with a clip which kind of gives you a sense of the feel of the show. This is a scene in which Ricky is yelling at his A&R team to, to just do better. You know what they call this label out there in the world? American Cemetery, where artists go to die. You know, maybe we could get hipper offices, move out of the Brill building. I like it here. Asshole. Bars. Dance clubs. Fucking high school talent shows, wherever people sing. Public restrooms, boss. That's, that's honestly the place I've been lately, and uh, groups going there to rehearse for the, the, the harmonies. There you go. They're going there and they're singing all the time. Nine right? months. Nine months. I sat in the dark to sign Jose Feliciano, okay? He's blind, he doesn't need lamps. I want what's next! Richie, I have something. The nasty bits. I mean, they're raw, but I think they're pretty good. <laughs> nasty bits. Richie, it's four chimps with telecasters. You lost speaking privileges. They're playing the Coventry tonight. I'm gonna go check them out. Where'd you find them? I saw the singer on the subway, and I liked his look. That's what I'm talking about. From the fucking sandwich girl! At the end of that scene, a character named Jamie, played by Juno Temple, 
kind of emerges as our Peggy Olsen-esque protagonist. She's right. the sandwich girl, but she's kind of making a play to be a part of the A&R team. I mean, I think the show in general, in terms of its world building, if we can start talking about that, feels very similar to Mad Men. I was going to say it is very, it is very much like a like Empire meets Mad Men sort of in its conception. But, uh, oh my God! Everyone involved with the show just jizzed a thousand times. I used to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know it is. I mean, she's. We definitely got a Peggy Olsen character. We've got you know at least two, at least two or three kind of plausible Roger Sterling's, and we got a Don Draper. We've you got know. the wife at home who's yep. unhappy. Mm-hmm. We got yeah, you know, the life in the city versus the life in the suburbs, mm-hmm. and you know, the era is you know what thirteen years away from the start of Mad Men, but and only a couple years away from the end of Mad Men. Exactly right. Um, but that said, it's it, to me it just feels more like a Scorsese kind of project. Like it doesn't feel like like it's not it's not a genteel show. It's a very nasty kind of chaotic show, and and uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot, and I'm a little surprised by how much I like I liked it because I saw the trailers and I thought the trailers looked like oh god, not this again. I have not been that huge of a fan of Scorsese's work in the last. 20 years, honestly. I mean, he's always, there's always something brilliant and surprising in his filmmaking, and he never makes an obvious, a completely obvious movie. There's always something that's slightly off center, like, hmm, really? He's making that? But a lot of times he leaves me cold. Like, there's been something very kind of hermetically sealed about a lot of his films. Some, like, they often felt too big or too glossy, and I, and I just, I don't like Leonardo DiCaprio as a Scorsese <laughs> hero. I just have never warmed to him. Although Wolf of Wall Street, which Terrence Winter wrote, that was the first time where I felt like something really gelled with the three of them. And it was something about the tone of it. And that was a very um, sour, bitter, ugly kind of movie, but it had a punk rock kind of edge to it, despite being about stockbrokers. And I and I appreciated that about it. Like, it felt like a genuinely dangerous movie in the sense that it was going to blow up in the faces of everybody who was involved with it. And this had that kind of sensibility. And I think it's partly Terrence Winter's involvement. But it's partly that um, something about that pilot reminded me of this sort of second phase in Scorsese's career in the 80s, where he had access to studio budgets, but it didn't seem like he was calculating every move to win an Oscar. It reminded me of like an After Hours or Color of Money or Last Temptation of Christ, like where it looks good, it sounds good, there are actors in it you've heard of, they're good actors, but it's not like, you know, they're building the Great Pyramids every time they they turn the cameras on. (laughs) Like there's something smaller about it. And the fact that the characters are so desperate and pathetic was kind of a saving grace. Like a lot of times Scorsese stuff, Terrence Winter stuff, tend to alienate me by being too in love with their own macho. You know, where it just becomes too much like pissing matches between guys and it's resolved by somebody getting beaten to death or shot or set on fire or something. You know, there's like hideous screaming and all that kind of crap. And here there's really nothing these guys can do except like yell at each other about money. Right. And it, that takes some of the sting out of it. It does have a, a bit of a feel. I mean, you you get all that kind of macho-ism, showboating, but like... There's a sense, there's like a goofiness to it where you're, they almost look at, it, it almost appears embarrassing. They're silly. Yeah. They're silly. Yeah. And the more desperate everyone got, the funnier it got. And that's why it reminded me of After Hours. And After Hours is the story of a guy who the $20 that he has uh, to pay the cab driver flies out the window and he gets lost in Soho. And it's just one misadventure after another. I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. I feel like something incredible is really going to happen here. <laughs> 
So when I got home, I gave her a call. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. I didn't really get along with her that well. What's the matter? I said, I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. So I left. Tiki! So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender who wanted to lend me the money. That's all right. That's all right. Forget it. Forget it. That's all right. Oh, boy. So I go back to the girl's apartment, but her roommate's really pissed off at me for the way I treated her friend. This the guy? Hi. So I march right in there to apologize. Come on! But she'd already killed herself. I was too late. Oh, wow. Like he's completely at the mercy of the fates, and, and there are a lot of characters who I feel like have elements of that in the story, and... I much prefer that to the boardwalk empire kind of brooding. Margaret, I'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> um, I, I guess I just found the whole thing to be so tedious. And what you guys are saying is like, oh, it's funny. I didn't find it funny at all. And, I, and like, like, to hear you say it's not macho posturing is insane to me because it is. Like, it's oh, I didn't super say, that. I, I did not say that. No, I just said that it was a different kind of macho posturing than you get in Scorsese movies where they have they can resort to violence and, you know. These I, guys aren't packing guns. They're packing checkbooks and they got no money in there. That's their why account. there's zero murder. Just kidding. There is one murder. <laughs> right. No, there is one murder. I, I think the murder, I mean, I don't know how I feel about the murder plot line, but, and I don't, I wasn't necessarily saying I found any of it funny necessarily, more like it's not necessarily glorified and it kind of looks stupid. Yeah. But. The one part I found funny was the murder because, you know, they kill him. They think they kill him and then he's not dead, but then they actually kill him, which I thought was kind of funny. That was like the one part I thought was funny. <laughs> well, I liked, I, I just liked it that it was uh, the way that it built, the way that that built and built and built to that scene. And then it goes even further when he goes to the club and the club collapses around him. Like this was just this whole thing, again, after hours, it's that kind of thing where you're. As a viewer, you're dreading that things could get worse than they've already gotten, but you're also secretly rooting for them to get worse. I've been less interested in the actual story and, like, more interested in kind of the feel and look of it. Like, the scene with the Mercer Arts Building collapsing was just, like, beautifully done. And I've just, you know, I've been enjoying watching them kind of create this world that so feels so 70s without feeling, like, too... Like making it too cheesy, which is like, yeah. uh, you know, they've just done a really, really great job of building this world. And I really like the music, like more than yeah. I, I, I think when I saw the trailer for this show, I did not think I would like it at all. So I've been pleasantly surprised by the things that I have enjoyed in it. And I get chills every once in a while when certain, when they film things that, in a certain way, in a yeah. particular light. And that's what I've enjoyed more out of it than the story, which feels a little too familiar. All the kind of beats are things that I are. Right. would expect out of this type of story. Yeah, yeah, and I just felt like it like it, it weirdly reminds me ultimately less of, you know, even though I keep citing after hours, it's it, there's something about it that's a little more kind of like Boogie Nights, mm -hmm. which doesn't have a whole lot of a plot either. Like that's, you know, that's very much about mood and sensation and characterization and music and things like that and and the scenes in that movie are like cuts on an album and that and that this show seems to have that kind of approach to it i felt like the physical experience of watching it was the primary point of it and the fur and the further away we get from that pilot i feel like the more clear that became and i like the way they use the um the legends of 
R&B and pop as these kind of like Greek chorus type characters who appear and sometimes they were anchored to Richie's consciousness and sometimes they're like these spirits that are just kind of wandering through the story and you have like Bo Diddley appearing in the mist on the edge of a pool party and there's this incredible moment later where Karen Carpenter just sort of shows up as a hallucination. Of course, at that point in the story, you know, all these people are still alive at the time so you can't say that they're like the ghosts of the dead rising up. They're just like manifestations of the way that people carry music around with them and and the brazenness of that appeals to me too you know is it deep not particularly except in the way that it portrays um the white dominated rock and roll industry like the money part of it is kind of being built atop this graveyard of largely black artists who have been exploited and that's mm-hmm. part of Richie's backstory and that keeps coming back not just through Richie but through other characters as well and uh, Lester Grimes, the blues musician, becomes increasingly important as the story goes along. But there's a line of dialogue where Bobby says something along the lines of the chickens are eventually going to come home to roost. And he's perhaps not explicitly talking about his own position vis-a-vis the murder that he's been <laughs> a part of, but but also some other things as well. Like there's a sense of like there's some bad, bad, bad karma that's been pumped into this universe. Like he is a active participant in that exploitation. And I feel like this is kind of his payback coming in a way. How much did it make you guys want to do drugs? <laughs> Well, there's a lot of cocaine. There's a lot mixed with work. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like when <laughs> I love his explanation. I got to say, Bobby kind of all. I think he's so good in this. You but... better because eighty percent of the show is him staring slack jawed into space. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, the pilot yeah. has like no fewer than eleven shots of him being like, Gah. and like a lot of yes. it he's on drugs and sometimes he's in like deep sometimes thought or whatever. But it's a lot of oh, there's like a swirling scene around him and he is standing at his desk sitting at his desk standing at a concert standing in his home just like mouth agape I watch like that is that is like the central image of the show and like certainly the aesthetic of the show is fascinating and would make a great coffee table book but like that's actually the central image of the show I feel like he I I felt I went back and forth on him like he is so good in some scenes and so his performance can be so subtle, but other scenes require him to have these sort of epiphany moments where he's like listening to something and he's like, that's it. Right, and it right, feels right. a little like he's being dealt a kind of bad hand. In I don't that think way. it's a bad performance. I'm just not interested. Right. It's like, oh man, what if, I wonder if this cocaine enthusiast will have an aha moment. It's like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> right? It's like, what if this band? And it's just like, oh, okay, 50 times of that? That's not a story. Well, there are a lot of stories going on. That's the other thing. Yeah, that's true. But yeah. I, but yeah, as far as Bobby goes, I felt like his story was more like the story of a like a film noir or thriller protagonist where things start falling apart almost from the very beginning, and he's kind of running away from the destruction. Like uh, there's that movie, The Big Clock, which was remade as No Way Out, where a guy gets hired, you know, to find the witness to a murder, and he himself is that witness. Yes, I led the hunt for the man that nobody knew. The orders were shoot to kill, twisting and turning through all the shadowed byways of a skyscraper city. A grim, relentless search that could lead to only one man, myself. And there's a lot of elements in this story that remind me of that kind of story where he's 
basically covering his own ass like he's complicit in things and he has to keep people from finding out about it not just the murder but all of the all the financial dealings of the of the record company and the drugs that he has to procure and all the uh, sort of extra legal extra contractual things that he has to do to get people on board and he's he's desperate and again pathetic like he's a sweaty pathetic you know He's very uh, sweaty. character. He sweats. Yeah, he sweats a lot. It's and a this, sweaty show. It is a very sweaty show. It's a very sweaty show, and I find him funny. I find him funny, and I like the way he, I like the way he sort of like overdoes the good cheer, and he doesn't know that he's doing it, and like the str- little peculiar dance that he does when he comes into the room sometimes, and just stuff like that. And um, and he's got great backup. I th- I thought Ray. I think Ray Romano is tremendous on this show. Me too. And he never gets enough credit as an actor, which is yeah. weird. Yeah, I mean, even if you didn't care for Everybody Loves Raymond, I can't recommend uh, Men of a Certain Age highly enough. That yes. show is fantastic, especially if you like that sort of uh, human scale, small, talky drama. Um, it's just like it was such a beautiful little show. Uh, and he was he's one of the creators of that show and he's one of the stars of it. And and yeah. it like completely changed the way I sort of perceived his role in pop culture. I think he's really good on the show. I think the performances are good. I don't I like. Was, yeah, I was actually surprised by Olivia Wilde. I thought she did a really good job because I'd never really seen her in a serious acting. Role. She was good, too. She's locked. Unfortunately, she's so, locked in this role. Yeah. Like it's like post-divorce Betty Draper, and you know, you... where it's like she's not like organically connected to this right. world that that everybody else is a part of. So that's a problem. I wanted to ask you guys. I mean, it does feel kind of cliched the way they deal with her plotline. But what about Betty on Mad Men felt so original and like what made that? That's the same type of long-suffering wife storyline, but. She was just a more interesting character. She was just a more interesting character. And and at first she seemed to be defined by Don, but I think it quickly became clear that there was more going on with her as Mm -hmm. a person. I think we learned a lot about Betty very early on that had nothing to do with Don qua Don. Right. So in the first episode, we know Betty is still like recovering from her mother's death and she's still grieving that. We see her have um, hand numbness. She crashes her car. I think that's episode two, maybe. Yeah. Um, We see all the weird shit with Glenn. And this is all happening in the first like seven episodes. I don't think Mad Men is ever like, come on, isn't Betty great? You're like, no, I don't like her. But I understand her. She's not a worthless character. And I think the way she sees the world is an important lens. Um, I don't think we get very much at all of the way Olivia Wilde's character sees the world, why she might see it that way, and why her take on everything that's happening might be like an important um, counter to to the way that everyone else is seeing themselves. I think you get a little bit of that as the show goes along. Like I mean, I by, think... by the time you get to four or five, you get you actually get a lot more of that than in the earlier episodes. But it's not there's not a level of depth and detail that you'd get from a Mad Men. But you know what other show? What show is that not true of? Sure. <laughs> like it's almost... No, and I mean, I think like there's you know, I think if we're gonna look at the kind of family tree that's split after The Sopranos, right? And then so we get this one branch and that's going to be Boardwalk Empire and this is much more clearly on that branch and then we get yeah. another branch and that's Mad Men. And I think this half is much more clearly born out of Boardwalk Empire and as much as maybe the like twigs are scratching twigs on the Mad Men side, like what is really happening is some of my beefs of, about Boardwalk Empire are present here, which is that I don't think the show necessarily knows what is the most interesting thing about it. And I think that was a major issue on Boardwalk Empire, where it was like, uh, 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 incest? Uh, 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 more prostitutes? And just, like, kind of, like, guessing about where... 
Like, you know, like, my fa- I, can I just say my favorite part of this podcast is when you perform the internal monologue of the show. Okay, I try. I hope you guys enjoy. Glad to you hear that do you do stand up sets. It's just you being these. <laughs> now my impression of it's like she effect. became vinyl for a second. Who's it was the, the damnedest saddest whore. Is every episode of Boardwalk Empire, and America is the saddest whore, and that's the story of Boardwalk Empire. It's like, I don't. And I feel like some of that... The saddest whore, <laughs> colon, Boardwalk Empire and American Decline. <laughs> yeah, that's my uh, it, that's my thesis. Nobody steal it. Um, um, so I think some it's a lot of vinyl, you get those like, oh, this is like an interesting shot, or this is like, oh, this is so well composed. And then when you actually look more closely, it's like, oh, so what is it saying? It's like, um... Don't look at that part. Look at this wig. And like, (laughs) listen to the music. Yeah. So I couldn't care. It took me four tries to get through that pilot. Like, as my friend Mike describes it, I couldn't stop putting it down. Like, I just, (laughs) like, I just, oh man. Do you think it's going to have trouble finding an audience outside of people who already have an interest in this era? I don't think this is a sure thing by any stretch. Yeah, I mean, no, like, not in, not in the way that, like, Boardwalk Empire was. If you missed this part of The Sopranos where people got whacked, but you found the psychiatry stuff to be kind of boring, <laughs> Boardwalk Empire was exactly the right show for you. Swipe left. It really was. No one. <laughs> well, it's like, yeah. you know, it's like, like that, that, you know, that, bifur- <laughs> that bifurcation that you're talking about. Like, that was the... Right. The phenomenon that Alan Sepinwall and I experienced at the Star-Ledger, you know, Tony Soprano's hometown newspaper, where we would get mail, like old-fashioned letters about our coverage of The Sopranos, and there were people who were really, really, really annoyed that there was so much talking on the show. Like, they wanted more They wanted more double-crossing, coke-snorting hookers and people hmm. getting shot in the head, and they didn't like, they didn't like having Tony talking about his feelings. Wow. They didn't like the scenes where Tony and Carmela had fights. They didn't like the scenes with the kids. They didn't like anything. All the good stuff? Like, well, the yeah. scenes with the kids can, you know, oh, can yeah. be eaten by the earth and none of us will miss <laughs> but, them. But, but, yeah, but, you know. The other stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was what, less talking, less yakking, more whacking. Was, was sort well, of then the maybe vinyl will be right up their alley. I don't. You I mean, know. I think plenty of people will like vinyl, right? I mean, people like rock and roll. You like drugs. You like um, marginalizing <laughs> female characters. You like uh, wigs. wigs. People <laughs> like wigs. I don't know. I like wigs. The world is yours, baby. on to our discussion of Louis C.K.'s new show, Horse and Pete. He released it a couple weeks ago without any warning on his website. And this is a show he paid for out of pocket. And he explained in an email a few days after that it was released that he wanted to release it without any kind of promotion or banner ads or clips that tell you anything about what the show feels or looks like so that you just get to make up your own mind when you see it. Um, and for those who haven't seen it, it's staged, it's staged like a play. You're basically watching theater on your laptop. Yeah. Um, there's an intermission. It, there's there's in, entry and exit music by mm-hmm. Paul Simon, and the camera stays in kind of a fixed position. 
for the uh, most part. Yeah, it mostly unfolds at a bar, this centuries old century old bar that is called Horace and Pete's, and it's named after a generations of Horaces and Pete's. I usually brothers, but not always. Right. But yeah, it's always it's a patriarchally handed down small business, I guess. And Louis C.K. plays Horace. We have Steve Buscemi as Pete, Alan Alda as the elder Uncle Pete. <laughs> um, yeah. And the drama kind of pivots on what to do with the bar. The Edie Falco plays the daughter, and she wants to Sylvia. sell it because it's just money sitting there. Millions of dollars could be made off of it, but instead they're losing money on it. And But we have Alan Alda's character who wants to keep this patriarchal succession going. The scene where they discuss what's going to become of the bar is yeah. my favorite scene in, in either of the two episodes that I've watched. Listen, I would really like to get started because we have a bit of ground to cover. <clears throat> From my read of things, this case covers a common law issue regarding Sylvia and her brothers uh, involving this bar which they inherited from their father uh, when he died a year That's ago. not what happened. That's not the way this works. You know, you, you have no business being Pete, here. Please don't start with the, the, the nonsense about the Horace and Pete lineage. This is not Game of Thrones. Okay. Mr. Is Uncle Pete. Okay. If my notes are correct, you were Horace Sr.'s first cousin, which really gives you no role here. Hey, screw you, Randall. He was Horace, and I was Pete. And now he's gone, and that makes me Uncle Pete, and these two now, Horace and All Pete. All right, we're not going to do this, okay? Because this is old bullshit malarkey. This is how it's been done for no 100 years. Okay, everyone, please, just a minute here. I think it lays out the, the show and its world and its issues very, very clearly. And... and um, this it's is kind a of show. The thesis statement of it the kind show. of is, yeah, and it's but in the manner of like, you know, like it's like the way that a play would do it, like a death of a salesman or the Iceman cometh, where there's a point in a play like that where they're just like, all right, let me tell you what this is about, and this is that scene, and it's a scene that I I think is the best sort of articulated all around scene in there because it's very much about these characters, it's about this bar, it's about these present physical circumstances, but there's also a kind of a larger dimension to it where it's about the society that the bar is a part of, and the que- the key question is, are we going to keep going the way that we're going because that's how things have always been done, or are we going to change things? And I like that stuff, but the problem I have with this show is a problem that I occasionally had with Louis, which is. Um, Sometimes I feel like he resists story, like he resists the classical values of story for a kind of maybe an intellectual or philosophical reason or something. But a lot of times it feels like he's hedging his bets. Like like if, if he's always being experimental, then no one can really complain that he's not telling a good story. And there are lots of parts of these first two episodes of Horace and Pete where I just don't think the story is being well told, mm-hmm. where it feels like it's a... Uh, it feels unformed somehow. There's a lot of ideas going on, and we also have a lot of kind of capital I issues. They talk about Trump and Clinton and what it means to be a racist. We have this clip of regulars debating politics at the bar that kind of gives you a sense of the types of issues the show concerns itself with. Hillary Clinton is a cunt, <laughs> and I'm a liberal. <laughs> Look, do you know how lucky we are to live in this country? You think this conversation is happening at a bar in any other country? God, I hope not. 
Give me a fucking break. This country is not that great. It's not even a democracy anymore. Then go live in Afghanistan. You got the fucking beard for it. You know what the sad thing is? This country has such potential. It's not a democracy, you're right. But it could be tomorrow. If the people woke up, they could change the whole thing. The whole system's set up and waiting. It's just sitting there like exercise equipment, waiting to be touched while your fat ass watches TV. If everybody woke up tomorrow and said, we're not going to spend another fucking dollar or cast another vote or fight another bullshit war until we get our fair share, that shit would change tomorrow. But it fucking won't. It was really hard to clip the scene because it's like there's it's just these people ranting. It's like that feeling of when you're talking to someone and you can't. Like, they they never pause. So I was just, like, getting angry. Like, it's kind of like these people make you a little angry watching them. Well, that was my <laughs> that was my big complaint with a lot of this show. And it's, and it's kind of innate to the show, which is there were times when I felt like I was trapped in a bar with people that I didn't want to be in a bar with. You know? Yeah. I mean, and, and like, they've had too much to drink and they... They don't know how loud they are, and and uh, like you were saying, you know, it's no, just totally. it's a bit it's, much. I, I they do kind of feel like like there are separate little vignettes going on again here, where we have a story about a family, but then we also have like these commentaries on society. I'm not sure that any one part works extremely well, but other parts I think are much much more successful. I feel like this is like an interesting endeavor. I'm not sure that it's. Like, even judging it by its own standards, like, a, a overwhelming success. Um, I think the idea of, like, is a bad legacy better than no legacy at all is an interesting idea. I think that's, like, the question the show is kind of mm-hmm. poking at. And I think yeah. because Louis C.K. sort of positioned himself as, like, the voice of, like, the white dad type, like, that is... Like, that is kind of the question right now of, like, okay, so is, like, our bad legacy of all of this horrible shit better than no legacy at all? Um, And, like, I think that's an interesting set of ideas. Um, I think there are moments that that I did find really interesting. I think the relationship he has with his daughter, played by A.D. Bryant, is, like, I found some of that to be, like, really interesting, especially in contrast. She's amazing. But especially in contrast to Louis, where his daughters are very young. Hey, so, look, uh, I just... I've, been, I've just been trying to reach you because I'm, I don't know, I feel like you're mad at me. What? Yeah, I feel, yeah, it just, I get this feeling like, like we didn't have a fight or anything, but something, it, it just feels like something happened that you, like did I, is there something that I, I'm sorry, I'm, I just, I, I feel a bad feeling between us. So yeah, I, I just, do you want to get into this I, right I, now? I'm just trying to, I'm just saying that I, I'm getting a feeling like something's wrong, and so, I am coming out and saying something. Is isn't that is that a bad thing? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's kind of shitty, Dad. Whoa. Well, what? You asked the question. Well, do you did, want to know the answer? What did I do? Fucking God. What? You Honey, know, I don't know. No, it's like you are not aware of anything. You know, you like look at a person's face, and if they're smiling, you're fine, and if they're not, then you're sad. Isn't that normal? Yeah, for a five-year-old, but you're fifty. You know, and there are reasons why I need some boundaries. And obviously he's not playing himself and it's not the same. But, like, it's the same. I mean, like, it's it's certainly very similar. Um, We have, like, watching him sort of go toe-to-toe with 
his adult child, um, mm-hmm. I think is like an interesting. And and I'm actually interested in seeing that develop and finding out more about. Well, their he can't. Bu- he can't bullshit her. Yeah. yeah, he can't bullshit her. And also, it's in, it, it's also interesting in relation to his girlfriend, who yeah. he, who he kicks out to make room for his daughter. That's yeah. fascinating. And and. Um, you know that decision itself says a lot. I think about where this character is at, and and you were talking about Louis, uh, about the character of Louis on Louis, and this character Horace. Um, I would say Louis C.K. occupies this interesting middle ground where he is simultaneously, you know, he is a a person like a comic persona who acknowledges that things are changing and that there is a future that probably doesn't include guys who look like him, mm-hmm. you know, who or who at the very least are not going to be running the show. Um, but at the same time, there's this kind of weird nostalgia for the way things used to be, and there's this natural sense of pushback towards anybody who wants a, a piece of the pie that white guys have always claimed. So right. there's sort of mixed emotions going on there, and I feel like that comes out in his character. There's a scene in the last season of Louis that kind of gets at that, where we have him go into a what is what are those stores called where you get things for your home. Basically, like, oh, yeah, a, where, oh, that kitchen supply the store? The kitchen supply store, yeah. And he's stuck talking to the Asian store clerk, and she's basically like, we are the future, and that doesn't include you. Do you always get uncomfortable around younger people? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I think I maybe know why. Okay. Because we're the future. You don't belong in it. Because... We're beyond you, and naturally that makes you feel kind of bad. You have this deep down feeling that you don't matter anymore. Yes, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty true, yeah. You should be glad, though. I mean, do you have kids? Yeah, two girls. Do you want your kids' world to be a step above yours? Isn't that what we're all doing? Sure. So, doesn't it follow that if you're a good parent, and your kids evolve and are smarter than you, they're going to make you feel kind of dumb? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. So if you feel stupid around young people, things are going good. I think we can all understand the desire to be Tracy Letts, right? Like, I get it. But at the same time, a lot of this doesn't quite work for me. These moments that are supposed to be, like, super, like, rich and emotional just felt so shoehorned in. And so it's like, oh, wow, you know, like anyone would dream of having this like dramatic monologue from Edie Falco and she's killing it but it was also just like wow we got here fast and without maybe like the the are you talking about the cancer uh, scene at the beginning of episode two I was actually talking about the sort of denouement in episode one but I think the cancer scene in episode two works just as well for this example like we have these like huge huge dramatic moments and I don't I don't feel like the foundation is strong enough to support quite the weight of those moments. That's that's what I was trying to get at earlier, which is, to me, this is a structure problem. It's a structure problem. It's a problem of shape. It's a problem of judgment from moment to moment of how to build. And that's something that Louis C.K. has never been good at or interested in. Like, despite his brilliance in a lot of other areas, that's not his bag. It just isn't. And I don't know if it comes out of being a stand-up where you're moving from subject to subject and mood to mood and character to character pretty much willy-nilly and you can bag like anytime something's not working you bag it and you move on to something else like it's not the same thing as writing a classically structured play or or film script or tv script yeah i agree i mean i think there for me was a little bit of a sense of first draftiness to some of it and louis wrote and directed everything and you mentioned in your review matt this is kind of that 
same problem that we've talked about on the show before. When the true detective problem. The true detective problem, one vision behind a show. Yeah. Is that a good thing? I don't know. I mean, maybe I, I, sometimes, but not yeah. always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if sometimes just like maybe like fine, he, you know, Louis C.K., star in it, direct it, shoot it, edit it yourself, but maybe have a few other people helping you write it. Not the dialogue, not creating the characters, but just the kind of structure that makes for a very satisfying, um, forward-moving, classically-styled TV experience is a kind of a left-brain thing. Right. I feel. I mean, you were writing in your review about just how Louis writes in general, his the way he uses language and this kind of inherent distrust of people's words. Right. Could you talk a little yeah, bit about that? Yeah, just just that's something that's has been true, you know, on it was true on his uh, first sitcom Lucky Louie. It's been true on Louie and it's true here too, which is he does have a great ear for the way that people uh two people are talking, one of them speaks and the other one doesn't actually hear the words coming out of their mouth, but instead hears what they imagine to be their actual agenda. Mm-hmm. And this leads to, you know, that other person attacking the first person, which leads to the first person defending what they said or trying to explain what they mean to say. And and so in a way, it's almost like Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a, there's, a, there's a lot of – it's weird. Like I don't know uh, how – how much of a social media person Louis C.K. really is, but <laughs> but you know, aside from using it to promote the stuff that he makes, but but that's definitely the way things go now. That so much communication is electronic, but it's true just in regular life as well. And I think he gets that. But I think he he gets into trouble sometimes where his characters are using like racially or sexually loaded language or trying to be politically incorrect or something. And they're trying to make a point, but sometimes it feels like it's just for shock value. I guess ultimately I'm not like super, super in the market for like, come watch the show and like Alan Alda will use the N-word a bunch and call people faggot. It's like, yeah, I actually like, I'm good. Like, I, like <laughs> I'm not saying I would never watch anything that includes hate speech. Obviously, I watch tons of stuff that includes hate speech and I live in the world and the world includes hate speech. But that commentary isn't. But like, like it's that not commentary. Insightful. Like I feel like the show is like, isn't this so real? Like right. check it out. And it's like right. I don't know, man. Like I'm not sure what the the value is of that. I guess I just am like, oh, like are there a bunch of like old white men who are like super racist and homophobic, and then like really mad when you call them out on it? It's like, yeah, I, I bet there are. I just don't like. Do I need to like create? like space in my life to include more of them like i'm like i'm <laughs> yeah. not sure right and so like as certainly like as a television critic part of my job is to watch this kind of thing and i'm you know interested in in all kinds of formats and i'm curious and i think any kind of experimental production like this is is worth uh investigating i also think about like how could i be spending these watching hours and as much as i salute louis ck's desire to create something on his own and and whatever it's also like you know, I, I'm not sure that I need to watch more of that. There's an alternate universe in which this is a play. This is a play. It lasts, you know, about two hours. It has an intermission, and it says everything that presumably it's going to say in two or four or six or however many episodes there end up being, and and that's the end of it. And uh, and I got to say, like, I like the show better than you do, I think, Margaret. Yeah. But, but 
Um, I still am kind of on the fence about how much of this I want to see. And it, and it is sort of, for me, it's also a matter of like I only have a limited amount of time left on this earth and how do I <laughs> want to spend it? And, and you know, I wouldn't mind spending a little bit of time in bars. They're a lot of fun. But like you, 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 you put a lot of thought into where you want to be a regular. I'm not sure I want to be a regular at this bar. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. Thanks for listening. Why do we tear ourselves to pieces? I just need some time to think. Or maybe I just need.